KPCW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. Now let's find out what's in store for our weather today. As I look out the window, it's a little bit of light snow here in Sweet Alley. Thomas, we got Thomas Geeboy with ABC4. Thomas, is it ever going to stop? We actually will see it stop. Now, it, it seems like it doesn't want to, and unfortunately, well, if you look at it as an unfortunate thing, we do have more snow in the forecast, but there is at least a little bit of a break coming our way. So there's currently a batch of snow showers currently moving in from the south, and that's what we're currently seeing up in Park City. And we'll hold on to about a one in three chance through around midday today and then once we get into the afternoon the chance for any snow looks to be pretty low and in fact i think that we could actually see a decent amount of sunshine by the second half of the day it's still going to be chilly in park city it's still going to be breezy but with more of a southerly flow it's not going to be as cold as recent days we'll see a daytime high climbing into the upper 20s and our break in the action looks like it's mainly going to be from later today through tonight and then through tomorrow. Tomorrow could actually bring mostly sunny skies with a daytime high of around 40 degrees in Park City. So to head outside tomorrow, going to be a pretty nice day to do so, especially if anybody wants to get up into the mountains and ski on all the new snow that we have. I just saw a report from Deer Valley earlier that we've seen over three feet of snow within the last few days. So there's plenty of fresh powder to enjoy up there. Just keep in mind the avalanche risk is still at least elevated. But as we go from Saturday night into Sunday, that's when the weather pattern begins to ramp back up because at this point, it looks like we do have a couple of systems lined up. The first one will begin to have its influence felt Saturday night into Sunday. And by Saturday night, we'll start to see this chance for snow increase and then snow looks likely on Sunday. And then we could see snow showers continuing through the day on Monday. And then as quickly as we get past that system coming in Saturday night, Sunday into Monday, we have another st storm system that's likely going to be on the tails of that one, which will bring the likelihood of snow from Tuesday into Wednesday with maybe some lingering snow on Thursday. But at this point, we are going to be looking at definitely more snow for the Wasatch back and for Park City. And the daytime highs, once we get into Sunday, will start to come back down. We'll be more so in the lower 30s on Sunday. And then temperatures will be looking more so in the 20s for the daytime highs early next week. So the, the, the moral of the story is we're getting a little bit in the break of the action coming up in the next 36 hours, all for it to really get going once again by the end of the weekend into early next week. You know, Thomas, we've been in this virtuous cycle where we keep getting all this snow, which is wonderful for our skiers. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you think this fits historically? How, how big a season is this in terms of this consistent weather pattern? Well, right now we're sitting at like one, about a 100, over 150 percent of median when it comes to the snowpack for the season. So we're doing very well, and most of our resorts have more or less seen what they would normally see for an entire season at this point, and we still have a while to go. So we're doing very well, and as far as like Salt Lake City is concerned, for this winter, we're kind of, or for this system, we saw this last one, we're like top 10 when it comes to how much snow we've seen. <laughs> so it's been healthy, to say the least. Thanks, Thomas. Have a great weekend. You too, my friend. Now let's find out what the, all this incredible amount of snow is going to mean for the backcountry. On the phone, we've got the Utah Avalanche Center. What are we looking at? Hey there. Good morning. Yeah, it has been quite a winter, hasn't it? Yeah, um, yes. I mean, it, it, it started snowing in November, and we, we had a little break in November, and then a little break about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but that's been it. It's been snow, snowing regularly, and yeah, it's snowfall this coming week. Um, it, it, we, we do have a remarkable snowpack from low elevations all the way up to the to the ridge tops. Um, yeah, and you know historically 100 and over 150 percent of average. Um, and I, I've been in this range now for about 34 years, and this is as deep as I can ever remember it. So um, yeah, you know great coverage, uh, and we definitely need it for water. 
And uh, all the snow does mean avalanche danger. So we're, con we're continuing to have a considerable avalanche danger. That means triggering human triggered avalanches are likely. And you can find these at the mid and upper elevations on all aspects. Uh, you know, typically we'll, we'll, we'll tell folk, folks to focus on northerly aspects or easterly aspects, but you can see them all the way around the compass. Even at low elevations, avalanches are possible. And the biggest problem is the wind drifting. Um, we've had a lot of low density snow, so light fluffy snow, and it's easy to move around with any wind blowing. So we've had uh, stronger winds Wednesday into yesterday. Even overnight, we had some stronger winds. So uh, wind drift, fresh wind drifted snow avalanches are likely at the mid and upper elevations on all aspects. Yesterday in the Salt Lake Mountains, we had eight human and natural, human triggered and natural avalanches reported. I don't think it's gonna be as touchy today, but I do still think they're likely. And um, yeah, a little bit of a break tomorrow and then uh, we're back in the snow globe for most of this coming week. So it, it sounds like the challenges are gonna continue this weekend. Have, have we had a significant number of human triggered avalanches over the last few days? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think whenever you have more than a couple, um, I, I would begin <laughs> to call it significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, you know, yesterday we had eight. Um, I forgot count from uh, Wednesday, but I mean, we're, we're probably in the mid-teens. Um, that's a, yeah, it's a lot of avalanches. And um, when you see such widespread avalanche activity, um, it's, you know, it's definitely a heads up. It's not uncommon that when we'll have a lower danger, well, there'll still be an occasional avalanche here or there, but we're seeing, we're seeing widespread human-triggered avalanche activity. And um, when, when we talk about avalanche danger, we talk about red flags, and the biggest red flag are recent avalanches. So we've had a lot of recent avalanches. That's a red flag, and folks definitely should be paying attention to it. You can always find out more at utahavalanchecenter.org. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Stay tuned. I'll be coming up. I'll be chatting with Bill Sirocco about some transformative ideas regarding our transportation challenges. Then we'll be speaking with Candace Hassan-Yeager about how all this snow has affected our drought concerns. And we'll finish this hour by chatting with Jude Grenny about this week's gallery stroll. First, let's look at some local news. The Summit County Council held a final work session with Dakota Pacific on Wednesday. It's the first meeting between the two parties since a controversial bill passed the Utah legislatures. KPCW's Connor Thomas was there. The council and the developer spoke against the backdrop of Senate Bill 84, which passed the Utah legislature last week. Language in SB 84, which originated in House Bill 446, seems to give Dakota Pacific the rights to build its mixed-use development in Kimball Junction without council approval. Council Chair Roger Armstrong asked the developers specifically if their lobbyists wrote the underlying bill, HB 446. CEO Mark Stamworth answered. We do work with lobbyists just as the county does. Uh, our lobbyists did have contact with respect to HB 44, uh, I don't even remember, 446? 446. Yeah. Uh, in terms of drafting the legislation, that was really a, a, a push from the drafting uh, legislator. Uh, from the from the author and legislator with input. Obviously, it had to do with our project, Kimball Junction. They needed input, so there was communication there. The other question that kept bubbling up at the Wednesday work session was whether Dakota Pacific Real Estate can make changes to its latest development proposal. It seems like the answer is no. The developer said making changes to the current plan would be too complex, and a public meeting was not a productive forum for those sorts of negotiations. The rest of the work session boiled down to a debate about Summit County's affordable housing needs. Some on the council worried that including too many market rates in the proposal would create a need for more services, more workers, and consequently, more affordable housing. Armstrong used the metaphor of digging a hole. We got this hole, 
you got this to put into that hole. And when you do that, it's going to leave a hole. But Stanworth emphasized what he called economic diversity, saying there's a strong need for diversity in the Kimball Junction area. We're, we're talking about a, an economic diversity hole. We're talking about a walkable community hole. We're talking about a where do seniors live hole. If, if we focus on one hole at the expense of all the other holes, I think that's a disingenuous argument. The council and the developer found themselves at an impasse for most of the meeting. Multiple council members asked Dakota Pacific how willing they were to make changes to their proposal. Council Vice Chair Melita Stevens asked about mandating owners use the units as their primary residences to no avail. Councilmember Tanya Hansen asked Stanworth if he could live with 500 units instead of 727, if that would pencil out, but he said it wouldn't. Based on the ratios that we have right now of affordability and, and otherwise, that is what pencils. The latest development proposal remains unchanged heading into public hearings over the next couple of weeks. The council has scheduled public hearings for March 1st and March 8th. It is scheduled to vote on Dakota Pacific's proposal March 15th. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. You're listening to KPCW's Morning news hour, local news hour, it is KPC News Time is 8.15. Talking about Park City's traffic and transportation problems kind of always reminds me about that old adage about the weather. Seems like everybody talks about it, but no one does anything. Here in the studio this morning is Bill Sirocco, one man who has decided to try to move the needle and push the community toward a much-needed dialogue about transformative ideas for our transportation problems. Bill, good morning. Good morning, Roger. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here. Okay, Bill, what, you're a private citizen. What motivated, what motivated you to become so involved with this problem? Well, f first, Roger, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the city's municipal works uh, staff. Um, they're doing a, a, a yeoman's job clearing the snow off the streets this morning. So thank you to all those hardworking folks. Um, you know, what I will say is um, when I first came to Park City, you know, people would say, oh, the traffic is, is really bad. Um, and I would think all things are relative, right? I <laughs> moved here from the East Coast from New York City, um, and I was like, well, you want to hear about traffic, let me tell you about traffic. Um, but after spending several years here and looking at what's going on, it, it, it occurred to me that we have some options to, to solve these problems, um, but that the dialogue wasn't really happening. So that's really what motivated me. And again, once you had that motivation, you sort of looked around and thought about what could be done. How did you begin to think about so, some more dramatic or transformative ideas? What, where, where did you go next? Sure. Um, I, I think it started in um, late summer of 2021, fall of 2021. There were a number of efforts. I know there was one done by Summit County. I know there was one, I think, uh, by Park City itself talking about um, how to improve the rail trail. What could we do to the rail trail to make it better, more active, you know, have more people use it? I attended an open house that Summit County did over the Basin Rec um, offices over on Trailside probably about nine months ago. And while looking at all the boards there, you know, it occurred to me that, hey, we've got this rail corridor, right? Um, and the rails, I think, were just picked out, pulled up in around 1990 or so. But the corridor still is, still is there. And if the right of way is still there, maybe we could use that to help solve our traffic problem. So that would have been a 248 kind of approach. And obviously, I, when you start talking about our long-term traffic problems, we got two of them, right? We yes. have a 248 problem and we got a 224 problem. Um, so the rail trail is a 248 kind of a solution. I know that you then sort of somehow came in contact with the uh, folks who are doing the Rio Grande project down in Salt Lake City. Who, who are they and what is that project? Um, yeah, so, so what happened, Roger, is um, 
you know, I, I, I tend to read on transportation a lot and um, have some Google alerts set for stuff. And I caught a story in the Salt Lake Tribune about the Rio Grande plan, which was a, a citizen-led effort, um, a, a traffic engineer and a landscape architect who put forth this visionary plan to renovate the old Rio Grande train station in downtown Salt Lake City and bring the rails and rail service back into that station. Um, I believe in the run-up to the 2002 Olympics, uh, maybe 1999, the rails were moved from the, from the backside of that station uh, about two blocks to the west um, into the middle of a rail yard. Um, you know, it was a big feature piece in the Salt Lake Tribune. I said, I need to, I need to speak to these guys. I emailed them, not expecting to hear back. You know, I was thinking maybe they'll get back to me in a couple of weeks because they were going to be flooded with, you know, inquiries. They got back to me that night um, and we started a dialogue. And this is uh, about the end of 2021. And since then, we've been we've met on several occasions uh, over Zoom, phone calls um, and talked about how do we tie in what you guys are doing in Salt Lake City to what maybe we need to do, how we need to address our traffic and transportation issues in the Wasatch back. And that's how it started. Um, and really there was one jewel in their plan that really caught my eye, you know, in their station, uh, they had track six reserved for a future, uh, lake to mountains train, which would, which would be a route from Salt Lake city up to park city. Okay. So that is also a citizen led, led effort. These guys are trying to create momentum. Um, their plan would not only move the train station, move the tracks to that station, but it would sort of create a sort of pedestrian area. It would create a whole ability for a robust urban positive experience surrounding the use of transportation, which is which is now lacking. So you've got that kind of momentum they're trying to put together. How are they doing working with the city and the other people who have to pay for it and authorize it? Yeah, so uh, you know, I would I would say as with anything um, in Utah. <laughs> that doesn't involve paving, um, it's, it's slow going at first, right? You need to really make a strong case and you really need to show the value. Um, I think there is some, I, I think there is some momentum. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mayor Mendenhall gave the State of the City address. Uh, she mentioned their plan three times. She also um, uh, stated that they were going to apply for a federal grant uh, for a feasibility study for the Rio Grande plan, which is, you know, really encouraging news. Um, I attended a public forum that um, the authors of the plan held uh, about three weeks ago at the Woodbine Food Hall. Uh, it was attended by about 100 citizens, and um, there were two city councilors there. Uh, Dan Dugan was one of them. I, I, I met Dan and spoke to him uh, a bit. He's, um, you know, very supportive. And, uh, and the Salt Lake City planning director was there. So, you know, while they weren't there to specifically endorse the plan, them showing up, I think, is a, is a, is a good show of support. So what is the vision for a potential train line that would run from the Rio Grande Station into, into Park City? Where would it go? How, what are you looking at? So fundamentally speaking, um, there was a there was a rail line up Parley's Canyon uh, that was ripped out when they when they uh, made Interstate 80. That was the old Denver Rio Grande line. Um, that would not be the routing we would use. That was built, um, you know, I think about a hundred years ago. Um, a lot of switchbacks on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, you know that. It, it, well, look, you know what I will say is, going up Parley's will not be easy. But if they could do it a hundred years ago. I'm sure with our knowledge uh, and improvements in technology, we could figure out a way to do it. Most likely, it would, it would utilize most, uh, mostly the median space 
all the way up Harley's. Um, if you've traveled, if you've been to Chicago, you've flown into O'Hare Airport, you can take a train into the city from the airport that runs in the median of uh, one of the expressways there. So that's, the, that's a similar concept. Um, you know, and that's you know, getting into the weeds a little bit. We haven't gotten that far yet, um, but we're talking conceptually. And I think there is a, I think there is a big need uh, to get people from the Salt Lake City area, whether it's workers or tourists who are arriving at the airport, up to Park City without a car. And conceptually, we get up to Park City. Uh, how do we get into town? I mean, th- th- this is pe- people. People are sitting looking at their radios, going, "Okay, I-, I can see how the train gets to the middle of the road. How do they? How do I get them? And where's it going to? What, what again? Big picture, preconceptual. Yep. What are we thinking? So look, there's. Um, <laughs> There's not a lot of room at Kimball Junction. We've kind of developed ourselves into a box, right? Um, but what we can do is we can look at what's happening in Kimball Junction right now. And there are a few things. First, we know the owner of the Tangier Outlet Centers has a, uh, an application before the Snyderville Basin Planning Commission to try to build Harmons at the top of the outlet center. Um, so let's maybe consider that property uh, in play for redevelopment. Um, so maybe there's a conversation that can be had there that results in a right-of-way where we can get some access off of 80 through that corridor into, you know, uh, and, and I know this is a touchy subject right now, <laughs> given what's gone on well, yesterday's meeting at the, with the county, but uh, into the Dakota Pacific property. I mean, it's ideally situated to be a receiving point of cars and uh, a portal from I-80, you know, into the Park City area. Um, so that's big picture thinking. We know UDOT also has um, uh, three plans that they're considering to how to fix Kimmel Junction. Their preferred plan, Plan B, would uh, would increase the output and input at Kimball Junction, which output is great. I mean, we can get more cars out more quickly, so that two or three mile backup on 224 every day, you know, would be mitigated. The problem is. I don't think it would be mitigated because more cars would be coming in. So we just would be, it's like a hamster wheel, right? The faster we run, the faster the wheel spins. So that's, that's the problem there. But conceptually speaking, it's not easy, but there are some things in play at Kimball Junction. Conversations need to be had. I don't think last night at the Summit County Planning, uh, Summit County Council meeting was where a Dakota Pacific might want to get into those conversations. Those have to happen, you know, behind closed doors. So hopefully, hopefully there's some movement there. And again, would the vision be that once I got through, in a, in a fantasy world, I get through the Dakota Pacific property, where am I going to go? And am I going to go down the middle of 224? What's the, what's the vision? <clears throat> sure. So, I mean, I mean I, you know, those of us that drive the 224 corridor, we know how wide it is right now. Um, there are two travel lanes in each direction. There's a center turning lane. There are shoulders. Um, you know, Summit County has a plan right now to um, to move forward on bus rapid transit in that corridor, which would uh, add another two lanes of pavement to that corridor. Now, I'm not I'm not saying we need to swap out one for the other, but what I will say is, if there's room for two more lanes of pavement, there's probably room to run a rail up that corridor. And, and again, the vision would be it would run down the corridor. Uh, again, to be to be helpful, it's got to translate into destinations sure. so where are we going to go and how are we gonna, you know, what's the the other end sure sure so so um you know the 224 <laughs> corridor certainly um is is wide enough it gets a little less wide as you get into park city proper around the peaks resort and hotel but um you know we feel there's room to run a line up that corridor into um the area that is known as bonanza park here in park city which the city is about to launch a small area plan to study that area for for rezoning and see how they can activate it so that that would be that would be the route there is you know there is um 
Summit County owns a parcel almost right across from the base of the canyons uh, entrance. Um, there is a conservation easement on that, um, but some of that parcel is in the, the public right away. So there's probably, or perhaps there may be room for a station stop there, which would be fantastic. Right. You know, you have a stop at Olympic Park, call it the Dakota Pacific property. You have a stop at the canyons. And then the next stop, you know, we would love to figure out a routing to get us into that Bonanza Park area um, without uh, without a, a tremendous amount of eminent domain. There might be one one parcel that would need to be acquired in there uh, to get us through, um, and that would be the that would be the Kimball Junction. That would be the 224 entrance, and the idea is to have that 248, that Kearns entrance, also come into that same area, right? Bill, I suspect we're going to have to come back and talk about 248 because, yeah. g given the time, because it is a wonderfully interesting topic and an important topic, yeah. and I really want to want to get into it. But for today, it's a wonderful vision. I'm seeing big dollar signs to build this kind of rail. I'm also seeing the possibility of an Olympics. Is there ways to be thinking about how to leverage that Olympics into maybe getting some of that money that would make it possible to build this kind of massive infrastructure project? You know, Roger, I think that I think the answer to that question is yes. I mean, if you've listened to Fraser Bullock speak, if you listen to Colin, Hil excuse me, Colin Hilton speak, Fraser's the uh, the head of the Salt Lake Bid Committee. Colin is on the Bid Committee. He's the chief executive officer of the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, and he runs the Olympic Park. If you listen to those gentlemen speak, they've said they've said to Park City, they've said to Summit County, "Tell us what you need. We don't write the checks, but we know the people that do. Tell us what you need. We can help you get it done." Um, in the context of Olympics, I think there's a, an opportunity for us to have a big ask. And in the context of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was signed by President Biden on November 15, 2021, with tens of billions of dollars uh, allocated for uh, public transportation, for rail transportation, and also for, for Superfund and Brownfield cleanup. We know we've got a soils issue here in Park City. There's tens of billions of dollars available. Not all of it's allocated. You know, I think Park City and Summit County need to get after some of that. Bill, this is a really interesting topic, and I think one that really resonates with a lot of our listeners. If they want to get involved in this, if they want to sort of help push this project forward or help being engaged in this dialogue, what, 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 what kind of things can they do? I would start, Roger, with um, the City Council has their two-day retreat beginning on March 2nd and 3rd. Transportation is going to be one of the big topics. You know, email the city council, email your, your representatives, Summit County Council, let them know that you want to think outside the box. And, um, and then on March 6th, we have a State of the City uh, uh, um, event, and I encourage you to attend that um, and, and let your feelings be known and talk to your um, public officials. And, Bill, I know you gave a presentation at the local Park City Rotary a couple of weeks ago with a lot of uh, dignitaries, uh, public officials, uh, community leaders and present. Have, wh what kind of reaction have you gotten from that? Um, Roger, so far it's been over, over the feedback's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think you know it was long overdue to really get serious about the transportation talk in this town, and people were thankful that we're you know kind of pushing the envelope a little bit and getting the community involved. Um, you know we're we're going to send out some uh, some additional information to those that attended and those that were invited, and then we're going to make sure that it gets publicly um, disseminated as well, so the general public can understand what we were talking about, and hopefully we can you know continue to move this effort forward. We've been talking with Bill Siracco about some visionary ideas for transformation of Park City transit issues. I know, Bill, one time I want to—I would like to get you back and talk some more about 248 because there's a whole different set of problems and a whole different set of issues. Um, but I appreciate you coming in this morning. 
We'll be right back after this. Thank you. For those of us who are shoveling out our driveways for perhaps the umpteenth time this winter, it's hard to be thinking about a drought. And indeed, the snowpack this year has been really remarkable. But for years, we've heard about the serious drought that's affected Utah. Here today to talk with us about that is Candace Hassan-Yeager, the director of the Division of Water Resources for the state of Utah. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. So, so Candace, let's start with the big picture. We've heard for years about the seriousness of the drought. Give us a little perspective on where we were before this winter started. Sure. You know, last year, when we think it was last fall, uh, the whole state was impacted by drought with 56% of the state in extreme drought. Um, currently, the, the state is still suffering a, a large uh, amount of drought across the state in various forms, but that extreme percentage went down to about 4%. So we've had uh, dramatic improvements in our drought situation. And talk to us a little bit. Uh, we, earlier on today, we had Thomas Giboy from the ABC News, the Weather Service, talking about the amount of snow we've had. But from your perspective, uh, talk to us a little bit about the snowpack this year. How, how significant is it relative to other years and relative to what we call normal? Yeah, so first off, let me let me just start by saying that about 95% of our water supply in Utah comes from our snow. Um, so the recent storms have really given us a, a big boost. Um, so drought typically in Utah is when we have, you know, less snow. Back east is when they have less summertime precipitation. So our snowpack really matters. Um, and currently we're about 53% of normal snow for snowpack statewide. Uh, this is about 18 inches of water in the snow. If you took all that snow and you melted it down, that's kind of the, the amount of water that you would have. I may have misunderstood. Did you just say 53% or 153%? 153%. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. More, <laughs> way more than normal. And, and again, just so we have some, some definitional terms, when we, what, what does the term drought mean? Is there, is there a mathematical meaning to that? No, it, it really just means that we've had an abnormally long period of low precipitation. So depending on how low indicates really the severity of it, um, generally, though, in like I said, in Utah, it's when we have a low snowpack and low runoff. Okay. Um, January precipitation, I know, was just way above normal. And uh, have we seen anything? Does it look like February is again going to be, you know, way above normal? You know, we, we are seeing, um, we had that kind of almost two-week period in the beginning of February that kind of dried out. So our, you know, average... Um, percent of snowpack did drop a little bit, but we're still well above our, our normal amount. Uh, our snowpack typically peaks in April, about 12 uh, inches of, or sorry, 15 inches of water. Uh, and right now we're at 18. So we're already significantly over our typical peak, which is April 1st. And we still have two months to go. And storms in the forecast. We did hear there were storms in the forecast. Sometimes it feels <laughs> like it's never going to end. Um, you know, last year and in the last few years, you would see a very visible sort of indication of the extent of our drought when you look over at the Jordanelle and you'd see that dramatically low water line. Are we going to see a significant sort of increase? I mean, will, will we see a visual evidence of this change this, this spring if things keep going as they are? Will we see reservoirs like the Jordanelle visibly be up, you know, a foot or so? 
smaller reservoirs, we are expecting them to fill and probably spill, right? They're going to they're gonna reach their capacity and start spilling out of the spillways. For, um, for larger reservoirs like Jordanelle, it may take multiple years, but I think that we will see a dramatic difference uh, in even our larger now, we, we talked about how, you know, in the east, it, you know, rainfall matters, and here in Utah, our snowpack matters. Let me ask, does it matter how quickly it warms up? In other words, do we lose, is, is there some significant impact if it warms up too quickly or it warms up too slowly in terms of the ability of, of the ground and the reservoirs to get the water? The, the short answer is yes, it, it does matter. Um, and it matters what our soil moisture content, right? Like if you think of the soil like a sponge, if the soil, if the sponge is dry, the, the water will absorb into the sponge. If it's wet, it'll run off of it, right? So that's kind of one factor is how much of our soil moisture is there. And we do have a pretty good soil moisture right now statewide. So that's, that's good news. And then it does matter how it warms up this spring. If we continue to get um, snow and it is cold and then come, you know, May 1st, it's really warm and it runs off quickly. Uh, that can be good for, you know, our water supply situation, getting water to reservoirs. It can also cause flooding. Um, and then on the other side, if it's really slow where it, you know, warms up and then it freezes just because of the temperatures, it can reduce the runoff efficiency there. Um, so really what we're looking for is that Goldilocks scenario <laughs> where it runs off just right, but not too fast, not too slow. We've heard a lot about issues regarding the Great Salt Lake in particular. How are we, what are we seeing so far in terms of the impact of all this precipitation on Salt Lake, on the Great Salt Lake's water level? We are really excited and about what has been occurring on Great Salt Lake set in early November. And this is really due stream flows reduce evaporation just because the, the sun hasn't been out as much right yeah. um that being said you know we're still have a long ways to go to get great salt lake to a healthy level and so we're we need multiple years of these big storms um systems to come through to help us rebuild great salt lake and also our water conservation efforts across the Great Salt Lake Basin. I do want to talk a little more about that, but I, would, would you sort of explain to our audience a little bit about the recent executive order that would cause the causeway burn to be raised? What does that do and why does it matter? Yeah, that's a great question. So if, as your listeners probably know, there's a causeway that divides the north arm of the Great Salt Lake to the south arm. Um, and in 2016, there was a breach in the causeway, a bridge put across to allow more water from the south arm to flow to the north arm. Um, this was always anticipated to be an adaptively management berm. So as we needed, we could adjust and lower the height, raise and lower the height of the berm based on the current conditions. And so we've used that as a management tool. So what the executive order does is it raises the berm to 4192 and it uh, really just holds more water in the south end of the Great Salt Lake. And why this matters is because last year with these really low levels and low inflows, the salinity in the south arm really increased to a level that was starting to impact the ecological system and including brine shrimp and brine flies. But as that increase in salinity rose, their reproductive ability diminished 
And so there's concern long-term for the ecosystem. So the governor issued that executive order to really um, just adjust how much the salinity was so we can keep more water in the south arm. So just, just so people can... Then it does spill into the north arm. Okay, so the, the hypersaline water is in the north arm. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we want to limit That's the amount of right. So we want to limit the amount of hypersaline water that flows from the north to the south by raising the berm. Okay. Okay. And why? Why is it that? that yes. Okay. So, so why does the what? What is the sort of ecosystem in the North Arm? Is, is it very limited because of just how salty it is? It is. There's some um, bacteria that live. Is, uh, very limited in, in what it is, but there are still uses in the North Arm as well um, for mineral extraction industries and, and folks like that. Um, okay, uh, is there anything else you want to tell our audiences about what about our audience? Only have one uh, about uh, sort of what they can be doing to help manage the drought and what we can expect this spring. Yeah, you know, I think let uh, Mother Nature do the hard work this spring and let the wait to water. Um, that's really where we see the most of our water use is outside on our lawns and gardens. Uh, so that's a really important point. And do everything like normal. And I would say, you know, we still need to be wise um, use our water wisely and, you know, continue to look for ways to conserve water to help make us more drought resilient for the next time, you know, as we're still in this drought and the next big severe drought that will come. Um, and your audience can re go to slowtheflow.org for additional information. We've been speaking with Candace Hassan-Yeager, the director of the Division of Water Resources for the state of Utah. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. We'll be right back after this. The new editor of the Park Record spoke with KPCW about his editorial approach to the paper. Parker Malatesta has more. Robert Meyerowitz started as editor of the Park Record in October. The position had been open since previous editor Bubba Brown departed in April 2022. Meyerowitz began his career in journalism as a foreign correspondent for AP and NPR, covering conflicts in Central America and Israel. Well, I, I was born at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. But in journalism, I came from, I started working as a foreign reporter uh, for public radio, actually. And then I uh, spent a long time as a print reporter and editor in Alaska. And then uh, stayed in the West, mostly in Montana and Colorado. And I was in Durango, Colorado before I came here. He said he found the park record job to be a unique opportunity in the small newsroom setting appealed to him. While the print paper has a smaller staff than in years past, Meyerowitz said he came in with tempered expectations. You can perennially feel that loss, especially if you've worked at a paper, and many people have now that's been downsized. But I came in expecting the staff to be the size that it is. My job is to preserve that size and sort of maximize what we do. And some of that means not doing some things that we were doing before and, and being able to do other things. If they're able to bring on more reporters, he said he'd like to do more coverage of local school districts and business. I mean, there's a strong feeling, and I think this is shared by reporters who have been here just a little while and been here a long time, um, and former editor or editors, that uh, we should beef up coverage of education, uh, coverage of business locally, with a person who is dedicated to doing those things. 
Specifically, he said there's a hole in coverage of local ski conglomerates. You know, I feel the loss of uh, bigger picture reporting, for example, about uh, Bell Resorts, Inc., and about Altera, um, and Altera especially. It's sort of mysterious what's going on with the companies in the macro sense, especially with Altera, which is privately held. But those things do affect us locally. Meyerowitz also said they want to continue to push out letters to the editor about local issues. He said currently popular topics include the Dakota Pacific Project and Pickleball. The park record is owned by West Virginia-based Ogden Newspapers. The company owns media entities across the country. In Utah, along with the park record, they maintain ownership of the Daily Herald in Provo and the Standard Examiner in Ogden. They also run papers in many ski towns across Colorado, including the Aspen Times, Steamboat Pilot, and the Vail Daily. Ogden's CEO, Robert Nutting, is also the majority owner of Major League Baseball's Pittsburgh Pirates. Similar to other Ogden papers, the Park Record's revenue comes from advertising and print subscriptions. Park Record publisher Valerie Spung said there are no plans to eradicate the print edition. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. Two snowmobile crashes in the past week required help from Wasatch County Search and Rescue. KPCW's Ben Lasseter has the details. In separate events early this week and late last week, three people needed medical attention and evacuation from popular recreation areas near the Heber Valley. Monday afternoon, a search and rescue and Wasatch Fire team went out to the Strawberry River area and helped two women. According to rescuers, the two were riding one snowmobile together and crashed headfirst into a creek bed. Over a span of two hours, the responders provided first aid and brought the women back to the trailhead. They took one in the snowbulance, a snowmobile toboggan attachment with an enclosed stretcher with shock suspension. Two days prior on Saturday, a search and rescue crew and firefighters responded to another snowmobile crash at the top of the Daniels Loop, also in the Strawberry area. Photos show the nose of the snowmobile against a tree. They delivered the 30-year-old patient to the Daniels Summit in the snowbulance. From there, he left in an ambulance. As winter storms continue, backcountry conditions become more treacherous. In a recent interview with KPCW, Wasatch County Search and Rescue Captain Cam Kohler said anyone who heads into the backcountry should always plan for the worst and tell someone where they plan to go. If I'm going to go snowmobiling, I've got gear to be able to get me into the backcountry, but also cover me in an emergency situation, meaning I've got all the avalanche gear, the safety gear, the airbag, the avalanche beacon, shovels. He also said people should plan for the worst case scenario. That means bringing equipment to last a night in the cold, even if they only plan to spend a couple of hours away. Food, water, shelter, communications. What am I going to need to get me through this event if things don't turn out the way I plan? That's when people get in trouble. They're going to go up and ride their snowmobile or their neighbor's snowmobile for a couple of hours, and it doesn't go that way, and all of a sudden now they're way over their head with no equipment to get them by. More information about Wasatch County Search and Rescue is available in the web version of this report at kpcw.org. Ben Lasseter, KPCW News. Each month, the Park City Gallery Association presents an evening of art, food, drinks, music, and great company with the monthly gallery stroll. Here to talk about the monthly gallery show and also some new developments with Jago Galleries are Jude Grenny and Jeff Fishman. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks Good for morning. having us. Jude, let's start with a little bit about uh, Jayco Galleries itself. Tell us a little bit about your facility and also about your new location. Well, thanks. I've actually been on Main Street uh, since 2002, had a gallery here, 
and just recently relocated to 323 Main Street. So I'm in a new location on Main Street. I'm hoping that people will keep finding us. We've opened, we opened in December, and then we just opened another one on Bainbridge Island. So I want to talk about Bainbridge. Let's talk about 323. Help our v- viewers visualize what's near it. Because, you know, addresses me are one thing, but you got to think, okay, what's it near? It's downhill from the eating establishment on the same side as the eating establishment um, between the parkite and the eating establishment on the upper level. So there's a gift store below us. Um, and Kitty Corner from where I've been for the last four years prior to that. And let's talk about Bainbridge Island. Where is that and what motivated you to open there? That's just a new chapter in my life. My kids moved out. I uh, <laughs> had to move locations here in town and I went on vacation up to the Pacific Northwest and met a lovely couple who had a gallery and wanted to retire. And it is um, a ferry boat ride right out of downtown Seattle. So a lot of day trippers. It's a kind of, you know, a resort town very similar to Park City in the 90s, <laughs> I would say. For those who can remember that. Uh, <laughs> Jude, tell us a little bit. Of, so, Jeff, are you going to be working mostly at the Bainbridge location? Is that is that your role? No, I'm located here in Park City, and when Jude travels to Bainbridge, I am the, the gallery for her. So, <laughs> As well as while she's here, um, of course, helping hanging art and different things like that, but... Uh, yes, I'm located in Park City. Tell us a little bit about the flavor of your gallery. What kinds of, of art do you exhibit, and how do you find your artists? You know, because I've had a gallery for so long, artists approach me as they do a lot of galleries. There are a lot more artists wanting representation than there are walls to put them on. Mine is like a little eclectic peek into things that I think are beautiful and creative. We do a lot of collage at Jago Galleries because I like mixed media. Um, and it's come into its own recently. So you'll see in um, one of the artists that we're featuring tonight, Dee Dee Lancey, makes origami that attaches to the front of the surfaces of her abstracts and um, often makes them out of maps. So that though you'll see ski trail maps and local topography maps that are part of her artwork. And she'll be there tonight. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Are you are you having any events with artists that will be at the gallery in the in the next few weeks or months? Absolutely. Got- Tonight's the night. In fact, most of the galleries who are participating in the gallery stroll tonight have are featuring Utah artists, and hopefully they'll all be able to make it up to be in the gallery so that you can come out and meet them. You know, in years past, the city's been great about clearing the sidewalks, even with all this snow. So the, I think you will be able to stroll tonight. Tell us, do you have any information about some of the other artists that might be appearing? You mentioned that um, some of the other galleries are going to have artists tonight. Absolutely. There's a local artist named Matt Flint, a Utah, who will be at Gallery Mar, and he does wildlife. And um, they're also having live music, so that'll be a fun event. They're kind of kitty corner from us. Um, I wanted to mention... Brett Webster Images will be taking uh, an additional discount off of any of their images that contain snow. I think that's something cool <laughs> to mention. Um, but they also have some um, enlarged microscopic, they call them snow gem photos, of a single Park City snowflake. And I was just looking at it yesterday online, and I just think they're beautiful images. So um, not that the artist will necessarily be there. Um, but he probably will be. I mean, it's Brett Webster. It's his own photography. So yeah, I would so hopefully he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ma- they're really cool. Meyer Gallery has uh, Jeff Pugh, who does more traditional rural landscapes, but in a modern way. So it's a, an interesting juxtaposition to see a, you know, a cow in front of a barn, but painted in a, a more contemporary style. He should probably also be at Meyer Gallery tonight. 
Um, Susan Swartz has some new work. And she'll be at her gallery, I, one would assume. If she's in town, I would imagine she'll be there, yes. Um, uh, David Beavis has some new photography, and his photography, uh, it's painterly in a way. He's always trying to frame his, his images to make them look more like a painting than a photograph, which is fun. Uh, and then Trove Gallery is featuring Ben Steele, who's a local artist. It's very highly realistic. Um, he's got a great new one. It's uh, a product, like a close-up of a soda bottle that's called Salt Something. And then the background of the painting features the salt flats and the mountains that are back there. So he'll be there, and he has a... a it's very, it, very realistic and almost, I guess you would say, pop art. In addition to D.D. Lancia... Jago Galleries tonight. We also have Stephanie Hawk, just to mention, and she uh, paints with very colorful... Um, Figurative work, yeah. so you'll mm -hmm. see, you Thank know, you. people on the ski slopes, <laughs> skiers, sledders, um, fun winter Family scenes. images, yeah. yeah. The opposite of selfies or realism, you know, kind of folky and uh, just people having everyday moments out on the ski hill, f having fun together. Both Dee Dee and Stephanie will be at the gallery tonight. So, I'm curious, given the incredible snow we've had, and we've had a reasonably decent tourist year, what have you seen in terms of gallery traffic this winter? Has it been a good season? It's hard for us to judge because we're in a new space, um, but I've talked to a lot of the other gallery owners, and uh, sales are a little bit down, traffic is a little bit down, but I think um, that's because the snow is so great. Everybody's out on the hill, <laughs> you know. Last year the they restaurants are killing it <laughs> afterwards, you know, when the ski resorts close. And again, the, the way the gallery stroll works, um, uh, what are the hours? And it, it sounds like the galleries really make an effort to provide an, an entertaining and interesting evening. Some of them are going to have music. Some of them, I assume, will have wine, different things like that. What are the hours and how, and how many galleries are going to participate tonight? There's 13 of us in the Park City Gallery Association, and we do this on the last Friday of every month between 6 and 9 p.m. It's free. You can start anywhere. You can go to all of them. You can go to one of them. We are not allowed to sell wine or serve wine <laughs> because we're, we're here in Utah, but, but we'll have hot cider, and a lot of them have refreshments. You'll meet the artists. It's a fun time to go out, especially if you're interested in art. You get to have a little deeper uh, discussion about it with some of the artists and the gallery owners. And while most of the galleries I know are on Main Street, some of them are not. What, what are some of the galleries that are off Main that participate in the gallery stroll? The Kimball Art Center will be open. Julie Nestor is open off of Main Street. And then there's a place in Prospector Square called the Prospector Ex Executive Suites. And they have art and they are also open during the Gallery Association stroll. You can find it all, too, on ParkCityGalleryAssociation.com. And also some of the information we've been sharing, will, will that also be on the, on the website? Yes. Okay. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Well, if you're in town <clears throat> at the end of next month, oh. we're doing a music stroll. So seven of the different venues will have musicians. It's a fun event. We've done it now. We did it twice last year, and it's the, they are the most well-attended gallery strolls because in addition to art, you get performance art. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for spending time with us. We've been talking uh, with Jude Grenny and Jeff Fishman of Jago Galleries. Uh, we encourage you to come out tonight. Uh, according to Thomas Geeboy, the snow will have stopped, so it should be a pleasant night to participate in the gallery stroll. Thanks for joining us. Please come out. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We'll be right back after this.